Let's go ahead and pray. God, we just thank you so much for your word. You've chosen to speak to man, God, and your word is your tool that you have used to speak to us. We thank you, God, for that gift. Thank you that we can open it up and we can get your mind, we can get your heart, we can get your will, we can get you. And uh, we just pray, God, that as we look in the book of Ruth, a story that took place many years ago, but a story that is so relevant to us today because you're in the story. I just pray as we open this book, God, that we will see you in the story and respond to you. Respond to the way that you work, the way that you love, the way that you give. Uh, God, we want more of you, and we just pray, God, as your word is spoken, that we will receive that. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. So we are in the book of Ruth. I think this is the fourth week, and uh, we went through the book of Judges and spent 16 weeks on the book of Judges. And, and when you, you look at the setup, you have uh, the book of Judges, which is 300 years of the most difficult time of, for God's people, the nation of Israel. And the reason why it's so difficult, because everybody does what is right in their own eyes. And, and so God sends deliverers, and in the process of sending deliverers, um, they don't deliver. <laughs> they, just, they just don't deliver. The suffering continues, the, the, uh, the politics continue, the, the horrificness of the, the book continues, and it's just a dark, dark book. And you're wondering as you walk through that book, what's the answer? And is there an answer? The answer is in the book of Ruth. Book of Ruth is actually found in the middle of Judges to provide the answer for the nation of Israel who is really struggling. The book of Ruth is put in the middle of Judges to give Israel the answer. And what is that answer? It's, it's a love story that points to who? That points to the Messiah. When you look at the book of Judges, it's like, boy, guys are not doing very well to try to save the world, or even ladies. Deborah was a judge, and it just, it just was not working out. It takes a God to save the world. And the book of Ruth is this love story that points directly to the Messiah. It has all the answers written in it. So what we're doing in the book of Ruth is we're opening it up to find out what the answers are of how to change a dark world. Yes, it's pointing to Christ, but there's other things that are in the book of Ruth that will set us on fire to change the world around us. The very first weekend we talked about celebrate the love of Christ. When the love of Christ is pouring out of us, what's going to happen is the world's going to see it. If you want to change your world, celebrate the love of Christ. Understand what you have and let your life just shine. Last week we talked about what? We talked about sacrifice and commitment. It's all written in the story of Ruth. I mean, in other words, if you want to change the world around you, sacrifice and commitment is what brings salvation. It brought salvation to us at the cross. But our sacrifice and our commitment to others and God is going to change the world around us. And so today we're going to, we're going to talk about what can we do? Connect to purpose. Connect to purpose. You won't believe the power that you have if you connect to purpose. It's going to be a little interesting sermon, and, and uh, the reason why is because the entire Bible is about God. And since the entire Bible is about God, um, uh, you can see him through the pages of Scripture. But often when we read, we don't see him. All we do is we see the characters that are taking place, the people that are taking place. Well, this morning we're going to look at the book of Ruth and we're going to try to see what God is doing in the book of Ruth. 
We're going to use this one word. Um, maybe it's a new word to you. Maybe it's not a new word. Maybe it's a word that you know. It's the word providence. Because it's going to be a difficult thing to explain. I just want to explain exactly what's going to happen in the entire sermon. We're going to take this one word, providence, and these two points are just going to tell you what providence is. The first two points will tell you what providence is. Then we're going to go to the story of Ruth. And then through the story of Ruth, I'm actually going to tell the story of Ruth twice. <laughs> you know, you're thinking, boy, what time are we going to get out of here? Yeah, <laughs> we'll see what time we get out of here. I'll tell the story of Ruth twice for the purpose for you to see providence in the story of Ruth. And then when we get to the end of your ser- uh, the sermon, you'll see in your notes, how to get through suffering. How to survive suffering. How to be able to manage suffering. How to overcome suffering. What takes place is that whenever salvation happens or whenever something that, that carries a lot of weight happens, suffering is usually in the center of it. Because what suffering does is suffering proclaims to me who I am. Suffering is a proclamation to me of who I am. When I suffer, guess what? The real Mike Dadera stands up. <laughs> he just does. He stands up with, with anger. He can stand up with anger. He can stand up with frustration. He can stand up for, with bitterness. Or he could stand up with peace if it's possible. When, he suffer, when I suffer, I could stand up with rest if it's possible. When you suffer, you proclaim to yourself what you stand on. And if we're going to change the world around us, when we suffer, what takes place is everybody looks at us. And when they see us suffer, they see the real person, who you're standing on, what you're standing on, who you believe in, where your, your strength is at. The reason why we're working on this word providence is because I can't see how anybody can manage, overcome, work through, survive, or even live with suffering without understanding this one word, providence. Because providence is the word that allows us to survive it push through it. So what is providence? Providence is forethought and foresight and implies a future end, a goal, and a definite purpose and a plan for attaining that end. Yes, that's a loaded statement. Since it is such a loaded statement, I just kind of want to um, ask a couple of questions and, uh, and see if we can get the answers. Because providence is, is a word that you learn in seminary, but often not a word that is, you know, hey, let's teach you providence up here. And I think we're missing a golden jewel if we just keep it in seminary and don't give it to you. So we're not going to keep it in seminary. We're going to give it to you. But when I went to seminary, they gave me tests. Uh, so I'm going to give you a test too. Ask you a couple questions to see if we can pass this test. Who threw Jonah into the sea? Don't get it wrong. It's easy. It's found in Jonah 1, 15. It says, so they, the people on the boat, picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea. Is that correct? Of course it's correct. It's the word of God that says that he threw him into the sea. But Jonah 2, 3 says this, for you had cast me into the deep. Who's you? Talk about God. Whoa, wait a second. The people on the boat threw him into the sea, but then God says, no, I'm the one that actually threw him into the sea. God just all of a sudden has entered in the story and makes a statement that I'm in the center of the story. Is there a purpose? Is there a plan? Is there a goal that God has in mind with Jonah being thrown into the sea? You know, Jesus, the Messiah, said what? Just like I'm going to the grave, just like Jonah was in the belly of the sea, or belly of the fish for three days, I will go to the grave for three days. I mean, the Messiah is even mentioning that. 
God threw him in the sea. Entered the story. There must have been a goal, purpose. God must be doing something. Ask another question. Who sold Joseph into slavery? Easy answer, Genesis 37. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. Looks like his brothers are the one that did it. Stripped him of his robe, and then they ended up selling him. And what did happen? He had years of suffering as a result of who? As a result of his brothers. But then we get to the end of the story, and you get this word in Genesis 50. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is, be, what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And you look at the story of Joseph, and we're like, Oh, I'm so glad that his brothers sold him. Why? Because he saved the world. And he wouldn't have been able to save the world if he did sell him. But think of the suffering that he went through before he saved the world. God doing something? God have a purpose, plan, goal? Is his hand working through this story? Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Exodus, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. It would not listen to Moses or Aaron. However, Exodus 9.12 says, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Is God working inside of this world? Is God moving things inside of this world? Is the invisible hand of God have a goal, a purpose, and a plan to make sure everything is working the way he wants it to work? Who made Esther queen? Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the virgins. So the king set a royal crown on her head. Is that correct? Well, God was doing something behind the scenes. Esther 4, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. And she saved the nation of Israel on her own two feet. Why? Because God was working things out. Job 2, 7. We can ask the question, who wreaked havoc on Job? This is an obvious one. We know the answer. Satan did. So Satan went out for the presence of, of the Lord, and he afflicted Job. Satan is the one that brought the havoc on Job. But we can't forget the deal in Job 1.8 that says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then, everything he has in your hands, but do not but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and then did the affliction. We can say that Satan did it, but he couldn't have done it even without God's permission according to this passage. Is there a plan? Is there a goal? Is there a mission that, that God wanted from this thing that he's talking with Satan? Well, I'll tell you that we're reading the story 3,000 years after it happened. And we're understanding more about God as we're reading the story. It's not died. That story still lives on. I mean, Job's life was, was short. Job's life was, was, was just, a, just a life. But we're still reading the story and we're seeing the hand of God in the story. And we're understanding suffering as a result of understanding the book of Job. Did Satan, or did God use actually even Satan to say, you know what, Satan, I know what you want, but I'll tell you, I want something too. And as a result, I'm going to get it no matter what. 
You want them? I will release my shield from him. And then all of a sudden the story of Job unfolds and the glory of God is proclaimed for 3,000 years. Is that what's going on? It's exactly what's going on. Did God have a purpose? Did God have a plan? Did God have a goal? Well, ask the question, who sentenced Jesus to death? John 19 tells us, finally, Pilate, he's the one that handed him over to them to be crucified. So Pilate's the one that sentenced Jesus to death. Well, actually, he's not the one. Because in John 19, it says, you have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. So that means God is the one that sentenced Jesus to death. But Jesus also says in John 10, no one takes my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. (laughs) What's the answer? What is the answer? Or even to ask another question, is it possible that Jesus might have never made it to the cross? Is it possible that Jesus might never have made it to the cross? Was Jesus' life in Pilate's hands? We know it's not because it's in the verse that God says, no, your life is, his life is not in your hands. His life is in my hands, is what God is saying. So God has this forethought, this plan, this goal, this mission that is going all the way through the fabrics of Scripture. And he's using this plan, this goal, this mission for his glory and our good. It's exactly what has taken place. What else has taken place? I mean, we don't have very many options. Providence is actually not even a debated subject. Because if providence isn't there, what else is there? I mean, here's a list. Luck, chance, karma, fate. What are we standing on? Or is it? providence is that the mighty hand of God working out a bloodline that goes all the way through the Old Testament and points to Jesus, goes to the cross, dies for the, for the sins of the world, is buried and then raises again to bring salvation to the entire world. And if you believe on him, then you will be saved. Could that have been stopped? Not if it's God's will. Not if it's, it's God's mind. What is providence? Number two, providence is the invisible hand of God working all things out for his glory and our good. We look through the Bible and you can't deny providence because the whole Bible would just fall to shreds. It would just, it would just all crumble because a Bible without God is was not, a, not a Bible. God is working through every fibers of the entire Bible. But what about me? What about me? We're reading this story of um, of. Ruth, and we think, well, how does it apply to Ruth? Well, if God is using providence in in the book of Ruth's life, in, in Ruth's life, is He going to use providence in mine? The word of providence that is out there that really carries us is Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that all things work for the good of those who have been called according to His purpose. All things work together for good to those who have been called what? According to his purpose. There must be a hand of God in my life that has an intended purpose, an intended meeting, and an intended result if I've been called to his purpose. Have you been called to his purpose? In other words, have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? And are you saved? If that's the case, there must be an intended purpose, goal, mission 
that proclaims God's name and God's glory and your happiness. There is one that is out there. It is the hand of God working through the fibers of life right now. In your life, in my life, the same way he worked through the fibers of those in the lives of, the, of those in the scriptures. So I just want to look at the book of Ruth. As we're looking at the book of Ruth, I want to, uh, I want to think of this, this word, providence. Let me give you this story really fast of the book of Ruth. There is suffering at the beginning of Ruth. We've been in it for uh, three weeks, and, and we know there's suffering at the beginning. That's, that's just what takes place. But guess what happens? Boaz, so you got Ruth and you have Naomi, and then Boaz comes in. Ruth and Naomi are suffering. Boaz comes in and brings redemption to who? Ruth. Brings redemption to Ruth, and then Ruth and Boaz get married, and then they bring redemption to who? Naomi, by giving Naomi a child, and you guys understand the whole dynamics of a child. You're going to get retirement. You're going to get, you're going to get security. You're going to get safety. You're going to get an heir. I mean, it's, it's huge back in those days. So they bring redemption to Naomi. The child's name is Obed. And as a result of the child being Obed, he has a child as well who's called Jesse. And Jesse has a child who is called David. And who's David? David is a man that is after God's own heart, which connects the line of the Messiah. Is that chance? Is that fate? Is that luck? Is it karma? Or is it providence with an intended goal? It's providence with an intended goal. Now let me tell you a story of Ruth a little bit slower. As I'm telling the story, again, we want to look at the concept of providence. Start over from the beginning. During the day of judges, meaning everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes, it's ugly. It's an ugly world. Everybody doing right in their own eyes, it's going to be as ugly as it could be. Naomi and her husband Elimelech are suffering, just the way it is. They're suffering because everybody's doing right in their own eyes, but also the land is struggling because there's a famine in the land. So they're suffering as a result of the famine. So they move to Moab. When they move to Moab, uh, the suffering doesn't stop. How does it not stop? Elimelech dies. Naomi also brought her two sons to Moab as well, and then they married Moabite ladies, but the suffering doesn't even stop after Elimelech dies. Naomi's two sons die. So suffering has just completely consumed Naomi. And as a result of all this suffering, she can't even make it in Moab. So she says, I've got to go back to Israel. I've got to go back to Bethlehem. So what she does is she starts going back, and these two ladies, her two daughter-in-laws, automatically go back with her because they're supposed to go back with her. And she's thinking, I am suffering right to the core, and if they continue to go with me, and suffer, they'll suffer even more than I'm even going to be suffering in this land. So she turns to them and says, go back, stop the suffering. Go back, go embrace their God in Moab, and go embrace your people. Go have your children, and go have your life. That's what she told them, Orpah. One of the daughters said, okay, i got to do it. And she went back. But Ruth said, no, I'm not going back. I'm going with you. If you're suffering, I'll be suffering right alongside you. What happens is they ended up going into Bethlehem. And when they went into Bethlehem, this is what it looked like. 
So the two of them went up, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me, and I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? This is a passage we're going to work through, so I just want to define a couple words to really get the extent of what is being spoken here. She went into Bethlehem, and the whole town was, was stirred. What does stirred mean? Stirred means echoed with excitement. The whole town was echoed with excitement that Naomi had returned. They're celebrating. Naomi, we haven't seen you for 10 years. Welcome back home. Did this make Naomi happy? No, it didn't make Naomi happy. In fact, it was the knife that was in her that started to actually turn. Because the thing that makes a person miserable, so miserable, is somebody who is happy. (laughs) It just ticks you off. And when you have a whole town that is happy, it's good to see you. And she is not happy. What happens? She's going to respond. And she responds aggressively. She says, do not call me Naomi. What's the word Naomi mean? Naomi means sweetness, pleasantness. People are getting named in the Old Testament in regards to what they are. Sweetness and pleasantness is what she is. Don't call me sweetness and pleasantness. Or pleasantness. Call me Marah. What does Marah mean? It means bitter. Don't call me sweet. Call me bitter. Bitter to the core. Why are you so bitter? The reason why she's so bitter is because if you look down the passage... The Lord has testified against her. What does the word testified mean? It means that responded against. The Lord has responded against me. And then she even used the, a more aggressive word at the very last verse. It says, the Almighty has brought calamity on me. Brought calamity means to do injury or hurt. The Almighty has done injury to me. The Almighty has hurt me. Also through this passage, you see God's name mentioned four times, but the names are different. You have the word almighty, and you also have the Lord, the word Lord. The word almighty is Hebrew is Shaddai, and Shaddai means what? All sufficient one, sustains, nourishes, and protects. And the word Lord means the one who I have a covenant relationship The one who is, who loves me. And then look at the structure of how she used these names of God. She says, Almighty, Lord, Lord, Almighty, all the way through. A broken structure that is there. And those words are underlined, as you can see in your notes. So what is she really saying with a thrust from her heart? This is what she's saying with a thrust from her heart. In a sense of all these words that are defined, call me Marah, call me bitterness. For the all-sufficient one who sustains, nourishes, protects, has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the one who I have a covenant relationship with has brought me back empty. 
Why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasantness? Why call me sweetness? When the one whom I have a covenant relationship with has responded against me, and the all-sufficient one who sustains, nourishes, protects, has injured me and has hurt me. The God who has promised to love me has injured me and hurt me. The God who promised to take care of me has injured me and has hurt me. These are aggressive words, which would lead us to ask the question, is she right? <laughs> I mean, is she, is she right? The answer is um, yes and no. When it comes to is she right, she was yes into the area that she was bringing the direction towards. It's obvious, going towards God. And she was right. Where does suffering come from? According to the Bible, suffering comes from four different areas in particular. Here's the four different areas. We suffer as a result of this fallen world. What is a fallen world? The fallen world is that Adam and Eve had a chance to choose God because he gave them a free will. They did not. They chose what Satan had to offer. So what they did is they chose something other than God. Well, something to other than God is is death, <laughs> is, is evil, is wrong, is, is suffering, is, is raunchy, is horrible, is horrific. They did not choose God. They chose something other than God. And as a result, the world has fallen. Now, God could have done one of two things. He could have said, you don't want me? Choose something else? Have it. <laughs> have it. And do you know what they would have had? They just have eternity in hell. So they would have had. But God didn't. He did something else. Do you know what he did? He let them live. <laughs> he let them live with a sinful nature inside of them. He let them live with a sinful nature inside of them. And all of a sudden, for the next 6,000 years, he's letting us live with this sinful nature inside of them. And as a result of this fallen world, there is always suffering because the wages of sin is what? Death. And if you are going to die, you will suffer before you get there. <laughs> Just the way it is. Well, we all know we're going to die because there's no way, I mean, we all know the fact that, that nobody's going to get out of this world alive, so we're all on our way to die. Since we know that we're on our way to die, we will suffer. In fact, I feel suffering every single year as I get older. Things are getting harder. Things are getting more difficult. Suffering is happening. Now, we don't like to think about that. We like to think about that God doesn't want us to suffer, so he's going he's to heal us. Well, just to say the obvious is that when God was, Jesus was on earth, every person that he healed is dead. I mean, it's, it's the way it is. We're not going to make it out. It's in a fallen world. And as a result, we're all going to suffer. All of us are going to suffer. In fact, if you look at it, God only had one person that had one son that had no sin but he had zero children that had no suffering. Zero. And you know what? We're going to suffer until Christ comes and redeems us. Christ comes in the end and looks at us face to face and the world is done. We're going to suffer until the return of Christ and we stand in front of heaven. It's just the way it is. 
In fact, the creation of the world even wants to kill us. It says that we were not only cursed as a result of our sin, the world was cursed. What does that mean? It means that the seas literally want to wipe us out. (laughs) It says in Psalms that God holds back the seas to make sure it does not. Uh, holds back the seas. His hands are holding back the seas because if he does not let it, if he lets it cross the line, we will die and he doesn't want it, to, it doesn't want it to happen. So he keeps it, he keeps it back. But every once in a while, he lets it go just an inch. It only happened one time in my lifetime where I've seen an aggressive tsunami. A lot of people ended up, ended up dying. And in that process, who got the blame? You know, you know, the stones were, were thrown at God. You know, he let it, go just a little bit, but we don't think about all the times that he holds it back. We don't think about the times that we should have died as soon as we stepped away from God. We, we don't think about any of this. So since we are still living, I just say it's his fault. It's his fault, because he should have just wiped us all out before we got in life. It's his fault. We suffer from our sin. What I mean by that is if you lie, you will break intimacy with people. That's what it is. If you lie to your mate, you'll break intimacy with your mate and you will not have relationship. That's why the Bible says, do not lie. It's a sin because if you lie, you're, you're going to suffer. Do not commit murder. Why? Because you'll be thrown in jail and you will suffer as a result of committing murder. These things will happen. That's why you don't want to break the law because what's going to happen when you do, you'll suffer as a result. Whose fault is that? Is it yours or is it God's? Well, God gave us a free will, and he didn't have to give us free will, but he did give us a free will. So since he gave us a free will, we do what we want, and as we do what we want, we suffer as a result of it. So we can say it's God's fault. I mean, he's God. We suffer as a result of other people's sins. So people have had, even in this room, horrific things that have taken place to them as a result of other people. And, and where does our finger go? Our finger goes right to them. And says, it is absolutely disgusting. I wish God would have killed you. I mean, that's, that's the depth of it. God could have. He's, he's God. He could have. He, he's God. He's, he's king over all of it. He's given us a free will. He's given them a free will. We live in a fallen world. The seas are trying to take us out. All this stuff is taken out. And God's hand is completely intervening inside of it. And, and still we're suffering as a result of it. It's just coming down on its heart. We suffer when God disciplines us. Now, we take this one out of context very fast and very aggressively because we think my life is miserable as a result of God consistently punishing me. God disciplines us like a father would discipline a child. You want that person to turn away from that one sin that they're doing at the time. Therefore, God disciplines you for the purpose of pulling away from that sin because he doesn't want you to suffer anymore. There's not this whole life perspective that I'm going to pay for what was done and God's going to discipline me for the rest of my life. No, it's, it's at the moments. It's at the, it's at the days. It's at the weeks. It's at the months. We know when God is working on us, and saying the things to us that you better get rid of it because if I don't get rid of it, you're going to go to destruction. And then God disciplines us that way. But if you look at all four of these, it could always be pointed to God. Why is it always being pointed to God? It's because he could have done things different than the way that he has. And the one thing different he could have done is just thrown us away when he should have. It's one thing different he could have done. You know, when you're, the king of kings and you're the, the lord of lords. 
and you carry so much power and you carry so much glory and you carry so much weight, it's going to end up on you. Just his. Because he has it. It's all. Naomi was okay to put it there. Okay, Naomi was okay. God, you have testified against me. God, you've allowed this evil, God, to happen to me. The reason why it's okay is because she's pointing it in one direction, the direction that it's supposed to go, to God and God only. To God and God only, and she's not praying to anything else. She's not saying, Satan has hurt me, Satan has destroyed me, Satan, because if she was, who's she praying to? Who she's thinking about? Who is she meditating upon? Satan has done this. Satan has done this. Satan has done this. She's going the wrong direction. She's going the wrong direction. Yes, Satan wants to wipe us out. Satan wants to take us out. Aggressively wants to take us out. But who's in charge? Who's in charge? It's God. Therefore, she's going the right direction. But where did she go wrong? Where did she go wrong? This is where she went wrong. She said to the words, I left full and the Almighty has brought me back empty. <laughs> That's wrong. Well, how is it wrong? Why is it wrong? The passage shows that it's wrong. Where do you see it in the passage that shows that it's wrong? Ruth is not mentioned when she's walking in town. It's all about Naomi. And everybody's talking to Naomi. And Naomi's talking to the people. But Naomi is not empty. <laughs> she has Ruth right next to her. She has Ruth. And the passage even gives it. It says this. So Naomi returned and the, and the Moabite, Naomi returned and the Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her. It's just interesting how the storyteller speaks about this. Now, Naomi returned, and the Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law. Why don't you just say Ruth? <laughs> the reason why the passage doesn't say Ruth is because the passage is saying, uh, you've got a package standing next to you that is actually going to be pretty amazing if you unfold the story. So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned where from the country of Moab, continued to talk about all the things that she is coming with, and they came to Bethlehem. And it just so happened that they came during the barley harvest. And all of a sudden, this whole story starts to take a turn. It so happened now that Naomi had a relative, her husband. It so happened that this relative, Naomi's Husbands from her Naomi's husband's side was a worthy man, which means that he's got money. He's he's rich. He's also a man of the clan. It so happened that he happened to be a man of the clan, means of Elimelech, meaning that um, that she could actually marry him if it's a possibility. It's not a possibility, probably not a possibility, but it so happened that it could be a possibility. Whose name was Boaz, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, "Let me go to the field and glean among the ears." Of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she so happened to come upon the part 
of the field who belongs to Boaz. And it so happened that Boaz was from the clan of Elimelech. You already said that Boaz is from the clan of Elimelech. But the author's enjoying himself. It just so happened that Elimelech, the Boaz is from the clan of Elimelech, and it so happened that he went to her field, and as a result of going to her field, she happened so happened to, to meet him. And the story continues to unfold that Boaz so happened to notice her. And after Boaz so happened to notice her, Boaz so happened to take care of her, Boaz so happened to protect her, Boaz so happened to make sure she doesn't go into any other fields because she wants her protected, Boaz so happened to pull her towards the other ladies so she was going to be protected because she's in a hostile land, Boaz so happened to have lunch with her after Ruth looked at her and looked at him and says, why have I found such favor in your eyes? You know why he found so much favor in his eyes? Boaz thinking, well, it just so happened that I found favor in your eyes. And then after the day of work, Ruth goes home, and Naomi asks the question, what happened? And you know what she says? It so happened that I met Boaz. It so happened that I found favor in his eyes. And Naomi says, well, if it so happened that you found favor in his eyes, maybe you should so happen to marry him because he comes to the, the clan of Elimelech. Why don't you go to propose to him? So do you know what Ruth did? She so happened to end up proposing to him. And after Ruth proposed to him, Boaz so happened to what? Accept it. And after Boaz accepted, they so happened to get married and they so happened to have a baby. And after they so happened to have a baby, guess what they had? They had a boy. They so happened to have a boy because if, if they had a girl, there's no way it could have gone through the bloodline of Jesus because to go through Adam, you needed a boy. But if God wants to do something, he's going to give them, uh, uh, not give them a girl, he's going to give them a boy if he's going to send that direction. They so happened had a boy. And then they gave that boy to Naomi to raise. And then as the story continues to go, no, that boy was named Obed. You so happened to have a son named Jesse. You so happened to have a son named... David, who so happened to be the man after God's own heart, who so happened to have so many different genealogies all the way up to the Messiah to the point where Jesus says that I am the son of David. And then all of a sudden we're so happened to be here this morning reading the story. As we're reading the story, we're like, oh, I can see God in it. I can see what God is doing. There's no chance. There's no, there's no luck there's beauty of God walking his hand all the way through the scripture. And guess what's going to happen? You're so happy going to die one day. And do you know what God's going to tell you when you look at him face to face? Nothing so happened. I did it. <laughs> the providential hand of God. I did it. All the way through scripture, I took care of those who are called according to my purpose. I watched over those who are called according to my purpose. And no matter what is happening, it's all going to turn out for good to those who love the Lord. No matter what's happening, it's all going to turn out for good to those for good to those who love the Lord. When we look at the story of Ruth, we can ask the question, how does it work with us? The way that it works with us is the majority um, of us suffer. I wouldn't even say the majority. I would say all of us suffer. Every single one of us suffer. And as we're suffering, there's things that are in our mind that's going somewhere. And do you know where the things are going? 
They're going to the same statements that Ruth is saying back, or Naomi is saying back in the book. They are saying with very thick words, why has God testified against me? Why has God done evil on me? Why has God taken the fullness out of me and making me empty? That's where we're at when we're suffering. But when I started preaching this book of Ruth, do you know what people said to me consistently? They said, I love the book of Ruth. I love the book of Ruth. Why do you love the book of Ruth? The reason why you love the book of Ruth is because you know the end of the story. (laughs) And if you didn't know the end of the story, you would not love the book of Ruth. In fact, you would hate the book of Ruth. But since you know the end of the story, you say, it's a wonderful book. But what about your story? You know the end of your story? I'll just tell you, it's as beautiful as the book of Ruth. (laughs) It's as beautiful as the book of Ruth, but yet we're still living in this crossroad of suffering to say, I'm going to forget God. I'm going to reject God. I don't want God anymore. And we're thinking God can't even exist because I'm not happy. And if he did exist, he'd make me happy. This would not happen if God was not there. I mean, these are the words we use against God as we put them on the platform. The same words that Naomi was sending to God. And that's where we're at. And that's where we live. And that's where many people go south and reject God and never even get to heaven as a result of like, I don't even want God anymore. As a result about that. So put this in our perspective as we're walking through suffering. How do you shove through it? How do you survive it? How do you make it? Well, I'll tell you, you cannot make it without the word providence. And I want to give you three different areas to look at when it comes to providence. Next point Providence puts perspective into everything. Read your story backwards. If you want to push through suffering, you must read your story backwards. Um, I'm raising two daughters, and and my wife and my two daughters, they have an awesome relationship. And and when they come together as a pair, sometimes they do things that just frustrate me. I'll just say that. Frustrate me, and I'm just like, I can't believe you guys do that. And and one thing that that they do as a as a threesome, as, a, as all three of them do this, and it drives me crazy, is, is if they watch an intense movie that just is a little bit intense, they Google the end of the story. I mean, just to show you the severity of this, we were actually in the movie theater watching Top Gun Maverick. And do you know what they did? They actually Googled, did Tom Selleck die? <laughs> and I'm like... What are you guys doing? You're watching a movie. You don't do that. There's no way that you do that. And you know what they say to me with a straight face? They say, we cannot enjoy the movie until we know the end. Because it's too intense to go through the movie. Um, I'm completely against that. But I'm going to stand next to him and I'm going to preach that just to let you know. Go to the end of your story. Do you know what happens when you go to the end of your story? This is what you're going to see. You're going to stand in front of God face to face. And after you stand in front of God, you're going to actually look back and you're going to see your life. And do you know what you're going to say when you see your life? I cannot believe it. Everything worked out for my good. As a result, I love you. Everything worked out for good 
as a result of my commitment to you, as a result of being called by you, as a result of knowing you. Do you mean those horrific things that I was taking place that I thought were just ruining me, were actually making me, those things that were taking place that, that I thought was just corruption and, and it was going to bury me, was actually pulling me closer to you and I got to actually taste your love more deeper than the process of going through those things and not? The thing that actually brought me to church, that horrific thing that brought me to church, made me find Jesus. God, you had my best interest in mind the whole time. That's where you should start reading your book. Because when you read your book that way, rather than right in the middle, God, why are you bringing evil against me? What you're going to do is everything's going to fall into perspective. Everything is going to fall into perspective. That no matter what, I have a God that is going to take whatever it is He's going to make it all right. But God is going to take whatever it is, and he's going to make it all right. Romans 8, 28, keep on using the verse, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Is that the way that we live? Often not. You know, if a a lightning strikes a Planned Parenthood, you know what we say? We say, boy, God is at work. God is saving lives. God is doing something absolutely miraculous. But what if lightning strikes Jefferson Baptist Church and splits this church right in half? Do you know what we say? I can't believe what Satan is doing to our church. I can't believe the tax that Satan is bringing to this church. But what is really happening, if that takes place, we can look at it and we can ask the question, what awesome thing is God going to do? How is he going to proclaim his name? How is he going to build us? How is he going to trust us? Where is he going to send us as a result of the suffering that has taken place? God is the one that's in control. God is the one that's sovereign. God is the one that's all powerful. There's not a duel between, between God and Satan. If there's a duel between God and Satan, then God might lose. <laughs> he's not going to lose. There's no way he's going to lose. He carries the power. He carries the glory. And he loves me and everything that happens in my life will work out good as a result of my love for him. Number four, providence puts purpose into everything. Believe God will work all things out for good. When you look at uh, suffering, there's different areas in, in our world where suffering is absolutely horrific. And one of the areas is war. Um, but look at the soldiers. I mean, when a soldier, you hear stories, consistently hear stories about soldiers. It's, they're just a different breed. When a soldier is under fire, what does he do? He attacks all the more. He pushes to the front line. And he pushes hard. He pushes to conquer. She even pushes to conquer. They push to conquer. They push to thrive. And and they will walk right to the front line, and they will suffer to the greatest degree. And then if they go back home, do you know what happens? They want to get back to the front line. They, they, they want to go back. Why? Because their brothers are out there. Their, their fellow soldiers are out there. They want to get back to them, and they're also driving a whole force in war to accomplish something great. And what is that? The freedom. That we have. People can suffer in horrific degrees if there's purpose that's attached to suffering. P- 
People can suffer in horrific degrees if there's purpose that is driving. The most horrific thing that could ever happen to you in your life is to suffer without purpose. Because if there's no suffering, if there's suffering without purpose, then there's no reason for it. All it is is just raw, crushing, bone-breaking suffering for no reason. What does providence do? Providence puts purpose into everything that happens. Puts purpose into everything that happens. Meaning that we do not suffer for no reason at all. There's something that has taken place that God is doing behind the scenes and is going to work out for good to those who love him. Paul, again, was a different breed. Here's a passage that he puts it out. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Slowing that passage down. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. What do you mean I want to know Christ and the power of resurrection? He knows that there is a power in the raising Lord and he wants a piece of it is what he says. I want a piece of that resurrection. And he's reading his story backwards. I'm going to be raised from the dead one one of these days and I'm reading my story backwards and I want a good piece of it. Well, the reason why Christ resurrection was even so powerful is because he took on the sins of the world. He took on the pain of the world. He took on the suffering of the world. And he went down to the bottom of the grave and his resurrection exploded, changing absolutely everything. Paul's saying, yeah, I want some of that. Jesus, don't, you've got, you've got it to an umph degree that I can't even come close to, but I want some of that. And then he says, I want to Share in the fellowship of his suffering? What does he mean, share in the fellowship of, God, of, of Christ's suffering? Martin Luther says it best. He says, I never understood the book of Psalms until I suffered. I read the book of Psalms, but I never understood it until I suffered. But then when I suffered, all of a sudden the book of Psalms came alive to me. <laughs> like it, God like practically came out of the pages and literally wrapped his arms around me. It's like I could almost, you know, sense the fragrance of his, of his, of his breath as I read the Book of Psalms. It was written to me, and I found my life in the Book of Psalms as a result of me suffering. I got to taste him. That's what Paul is saying. I'm going to share in the fellowship of the suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is Paul looking at his life. Backwards, And as a result of his situation right now is being ruled by that resurrection in the end. And he put purpose to it. And as a result, he can not only manage it, he's asking for more of it. I'm not encouraging you to do that, but that's what he's doing. Number five, providence puts mission into everything. Remain faithful to the end. Where you hurt is... Where your ministry is at. People who are suffering with great loss have great grief. It's probably where your ministry is at. And the reason why is because there is a pile of people in this room that are suffering with great loss and great grief. And there is more than a pile of people outside these doors that are suffering with great loss and great grief. 
as a result of the suffering of grief that you have, make it come alive by ministering to others that are suffering alongside of you in it. Grab a group together and talk about it. Work through it. Where uh, um, your ministry is in regards to your suffering as well in regards to your loneliness. If you're suffering in loneliness, guess what you should probably do? Connect with people. <laughs> you know why? Because everybody's lonely. I, my wife works at a school and I, I show up there every once in a while and it's interesting because the bell will ring and when the bell rings, guess what happens to those school hallways? They all just clutter full of people. Just kids, just cram. I mean, it's shoulder to shoulder. You rub shoulders, and there's no room to even walk because all these kids cram the hallways. Do you know what the number one difficulty that kids are facing in the world today? Is loneliness. <laughs> How? <laughs> How? Look at all of them. I mean, they, they run into each other as they're walking through the hall. But all these people that are walking through the hall and hitting shoulders together are doing what? They're suffering from loneliness. You're suffering from loneliness. Providence puts everything in perspective to say, that's my mission. The whole world's suffering. So many people are suffering with loneliness. That's my mission. See, that's the power of providence. Is that I, I went through something and to heal the thing that I'm going through is actually to go out and minister with it to mend those that are suffering as a result of the same thing I'm ha- that's happening to me. We have a whole bunch of alcohol um, um, Alcoholic groups, people are suffering from drug addictions and alcohol. Who leads those groups? Nobody that does not suffer without it. No, the people that are leading the groups are the people that suffered with alcoholism. Those are the people leading the groups. As a result of me suffering from alcoholism, I'm going to walk with the people that are suffering right now. As a result of me who suffered with it and have been touched by God and has worked through it, those are the people I'm going to walk with right now. Had a meeting just last week. Somebody said they wanted to, to put um, a divorce recovery group together. And what is, I was talking to this person, I was talking to this person, you saw her pain in the regards of the divorce. You saw her hurt. You saw something inside her that was, was crushed. But she pleads in providence, knowing that other people are this, feeling the same way. Let's put them all together. Because providence puts everything in perspective that this is now our mission. It's now our mission because all of us suffer. Everybody suffer, but with the power of providence, we can work it out for the good in the others because Christ is going to work it out for the good in us. 2 Timothy 4, 6 says, For I am already been poured out like a drink offering. The time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul's pain was his ministry. His prison was his pulpit. He believed in providence. The whole Bible believes in providence. He taught providence. And as a result of knowing what was going to happen to him in the end, he gave his whole life away to serving others that were suffering just like him. Let's pray. God, we just thank you that we're not living this life and hope we're lucky. The things that are happening to us, God, are not as a result of fate, not a result of karma, not a result of chance. 
God, we lived in a messed up world that wants to mess us up. And your hand, God, is navigating for your glory and our good. We just pray, God, that we would feast on that concept. Not turn away from you as a result of our suffering, but embrace you, God, in our suffering, knowing that we're going to be all right. Thank you for the gift of salvation and for making everything good. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.